Lord Jesus, you are the king that we sing of. You alone are the king of our lives. Help us to know what your kingdom means for us so that we can live to your glory. And teach us by your spirit at work in us how to see you more clearly and love you more dearly. As we pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're looking at the first chapter of this marvelous letter to the Colossians. And it's in this opening section of the letter that we find one of the most glorious descriptions of God to be found in the Bible. It starts appropriately enough for this week with Thanksgiving. But notice the focus of the Thanksgiving here is not on the gifts and the blessings that he's put into our lives. The focus is on him, on the gift giver. Listen to what Paul says. May you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father. It goes on. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And here is the reason for our joy. We are thankful because we know the one from whom the blessings come. And we know the one who has rescued us. We're thankful because we get to proclaim Christ is king. That's the purpose of the church. To proclaim Christ is king. And interestingly enough, that happens to be the name of the church in Bellingham that Matt Wall came from. Christ the King Church. What a great name for the church. That's what every church is. It's the group of people who proclaim that truth. Now, before we go any further in this letter, though, I think it's helpful to take a look at the city of Colossae that Paul's writing to. What was it like to live there? It's helpful to know something about the beliefs there because it was a real mixed-up stew of beliefs in that city. Maybe not too much unlike the city we live in. If you were to walk down the streets of first century Colossae, these are some of the types of beliefs that you would run into the people there. First of all, there were worshipers of nature. You could call it paganism. They were worshiping the elemental pieces of creation, whether it be earth, wind, fire, water, or forces of nature. Paul mentions these in his letter. He says to remember that you died to the elemental spirits of nature when you became owned by Christ. Or maybe you would run into a Stoic philosopher. The Stoics were the philosophers who believed only in the material world that you could see and touch. And therefore, they were people who went through life believing that their moral virtue was the only thing that had value in life. There wasn't anything else than the way they lived in the here and now. And so they went through life with a stiff upper lip. Or maybe you would run into a mystic. Or maybe we have another name for that called agnosticism or Gnosticism. Gnosticism is that idea that there are various levels of reality that the soul must migrate upwards through as it approaches heaven, as it acquires more and more secret knowledge. And so there are secret societies. And Paul refers to that, too. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you by insisting on these forms of worship, by worshiping angels and by dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking. He says that in the next chapter. Or you might run into a Jew who is transplanted Jew who had moved north from Israel. 
bringing all the religious customs and traditions with them. And Paul refers to them saying, again in chapter 2, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food and drink or observing festivals, moons, or Sabbaths. This area was also influenced by Rome. So, of course, you had those from Roman colonies who had brought with them their household gods and idols that they worshipped. And then, of course, there were agnostics and atheists and, well, it goes on and on. You can see that this was a time when the dominant religion was God in the kitchen sink. It's kind of like we run into today. I think the dominant religion around us is, well, whatever works for you. And into that mix of stew of beliefs, Paul speaks to these people, this church, who have tried to come away from those beliefs into the reality of a God who has revealed himself and reminds them that this God is unlike anything else the world has ever seen or ever will see. This God is singular in his strangeness because he is the invisible God. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, he's talking about Jesus. In him, all the things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. Here's the strange thing about the Christian faith, the thing that makes it utterly unique and exceptional among all the beliefs that this planet has ever seen. All the visible and invisible creation of the universe has been created through a person. And God has taken the entire bucket of his glory and power and deity and poured it into a human being. Into Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. It says here in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this is the most astounding thing about God. For some reason, God saw fit to take all of his godliness and power and glory, and pour it into humanity, into a person, a living, breathing person who walked in human history. Why? We can't explain that. But we can know that from that fact, we can know that there must be something infinitely valuable about human life, that God would choose to do that. And it wasn't just... Some kind of trick. This is not just God pretending to be human like it was trick photography or a Pixar animation or something. This is a real human being born of a human womb, died a human death on a cross. And it says here in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death. You see, the mystery is that all the fullness of God dwelled in this person. It's a mystery. And like a good mystery, it reminds me of the physics professor from Caltech, the Nobel Prize winner, who was a professor of quantum physics, and he said this about it. If you think you understand it, then you don't. 
It's a little bit like that because we're never going to understand the mystery as to how God could do such a thing. But here's what we can know. We can know that because he did it, this present world in which we live and breathe, where human history takes place, must have an infinite worth in his eyes. We can know that the visible and the invisible kingdom of heaven are intimately connected and wrapped up in each other, and we can know that the place where that happens is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the big picture. That's the big picture we see when we look at Christ. Now, it doesn't happen very often that I get to see that picture with shocking clarity. But every now and then, I get a little glimpse of heaven. It happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was lying in bed with my six-year-old son, Jacob, reading him a bedtime story. And the phone rang, and I, I stayed in bed there reading Jacob, Clifford the Big Red Dog, and waited for Linda to get the phone. And I thought it was odd because I heard her say, okay, I'll tell him. And then she hung up. I thought, this is strange. Who's calling at this time of night to leave a message for me? She walked in the room and said, Bruce, that was Steve. He says, the northern lights are out. And before she could even finish the sentence, I literally leaped vertically up off the bed and I was running through the house and I was screaming, kids, get up, come outside now. It's amazing they didn't all think the house was on fire. (laughs) And I got outside and I looked up and I saw what I've always wanted to see my whole life. I didn't grow up in the Northwest. I have never seen the Northern Lights before. And I looked up and directly over my head was this green glowing patch of the aurora. And then spreading out in all directions were rays of light reaching down almost to the horizon all around. It was covering almost the whole sky. And I couldn't do anything except just stand there under the glory of it. A moment later, my six-year-old Jacob comes out of the house to see what was making Daddy run around like a lunatic. <laughs> and he walks, he comes outside and he stops dead in his tracks. And he says, wow, God is doing cool stuff. <laughs> Now, there's the theologian in the family. (laughs) The theologian is the one who says, look at what God is doing. That's what theology is. But you see, it wasn't the glowing light in the sky that was really the glimpse of heaven. Actually, that was a part of the visible creation. It was what happened next after Jacob said, wow. God is doing cool stuff. And I said, yeah. And it was like that curtain of light rained down on me and sank straight into my heart and reminded me that the God who created that light, the eternal God, was a God that I know in Jesus Christ. And that was the shocking moment of clarity that gave me that glimpse of heaven. It was when, it was when the visible creation And the invisible creation all came together in him. That's what spiritual sight is. And that's what makes me wonder what it would be like to see him in person. What would it have been like to be Paul or one of the people who lived with Jesus, who got to see him in person? I wonder what he looked like. 
What did his face look like? Well, Paul tells us that all the fullness of God dwells in him. And Psalm 104 describes God this way, as clothed with honor and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. And indeed, that is how Jesus appeared to Peter, James, and John when he walked up the mountain with them and he was transformed in their presence. And we read about it in Matthew chapter 17. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. This is the Jesus through whom all things were created. And at that moment, he was clothed not in any kind of earthly clothing, but he was clothed with a light that came from outside of this world, that came from the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, as it says right here. Well, then it's no wonder that he decided to show up before the invention of TV and video cameras and iPods and DVDs. Can you imagine how fixated we would all have become on footage of images of Jesus? And we would have lost sight of the invisible God of reality behind that image. And people would think it was faked anyway. I mean, even the people who saw his miracles, many of them didn't believe How impressive is it to watch a few people rise up from the dead or see a few cripples walk or see somebody predict the weather after you've watched Indiana Jones and Star Wars and The Matrix? (laughs) People would still think it was faked unless they saw it with their own eyes. And it's the same today. The only proof we have of his existence is to see him alive. Today, in his body, in the church. Listen again to the letter. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Now, here's a scary thought. We are the body of Christ. And if people are going to see and believe in him, they're going to have to see him alive in us. That is a scary thought. Because I know that right now, some of you sitting here are not prepared to accept him precisely because of what you have seen in the church. Because you've seen hypocrisy and politics. You've seen judgmentalism and even anger. Because we don't get it right and we're not perfect images of him. He's the perfect image. We're not. But what we are is that we're a people who are being transformed into that image. And we can be a community where God's reconciling work is still going on. Where the transitory, temporary, visible creation 
and the invisible, eternal, heavenly kingdom are being merged and connected and wrapped up in a body, in a place. And we can be the community where Jesus is still rescuing people out of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. We can be a kingdom that proclaims Christ is king. Because we're the only face of Christ that our community is ever going to have a chance to see. And when we submit every decision and every moment to him, two things happen. He transforms us and people see him. And when that happens, the whole world is going to see the big picture. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in person, in Jesus, our Lord, in Christ the King. We praise you. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask to be transformed into your image of what you want the church to be. In your name, amen.